I said in the beginning that my church's mission statement is that we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And so the driving force behind my being here and my messages is to do that, to spread a passion, to try to kindle and reconfirm, strengthen a passion for the supremacy of God in you, for the joy of your parishes and for the joy of the peoples of Australia and the unreached peoples of the world. There's another driving force in every human heart, and that is the longing to be happy. There are two great passions in the universe. God has an infinite zeal and longing to be glorified, which we saw the first time together in Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. My glory I will not share with another. And every human being, including me, has a tremendous and unstoppable longing to be satisfied. And the thesis that drives my whole theology and my life is that God is most glorified in you and me when we are most satisfied in him. And therefore, these two great passions in the universe, God's to be glorified and mine to be satisfied, are not at odds. Which is why, ultimately and theologically, the lifestyle that will bring God most glory is a lifestyle flowing from a heart of satisfaction in God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that text in 1 Peter 3.15 where it says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Have you ever asked why they're asking about hope and not faith or other virtues? What, what do they see? What does a Gentile see? Always be ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that is in you. What prompts the question to you at your work or your ministry? What are you hoping in? What prompts that? And the answer is a lifestyle flows from hope. You are an alien in the world when you hope in God. If you hope in money, if you hope in sex, if you hope in prestige, if you hope in power, if you hope in ease, comfort, retirement, nobody's going to ask you about that. They know that. That's the way everybody lives. All the Gentiles seek those things. The only reason anybody's going to perk up their ears and say, tell me a reason for your hope is because they see you acting out of values that are so contrary to ordinary human values, which is what we've been talking about. If you are satisfied, hoping in, resting in, trusting in, leaning on all that God is for you in Jesus, future grace, your life is going to be such a life that people will see the difference and wonder about hope. And God will get glory because he's seen as the value in your life. He is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So the mission of my church, John Piper, go to Australia and spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, is accomplished only to the degree that I increase your satisfaction in God. Only to the degree that you leave this place more bent on the Christian hedonist goal of being ravished by God, so completely taken up and satisfied and contented in God that you can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, and give your life away in love to other people who don't know Christ and the sustaining of a parish who needs to be built up week in and week out. So that's my my goal. And that's what we've been doing. Now, here's another way we're going to do it this morning. Not different from last night. We began to do it. But another way to say the challenge is that all um, 
sinful states of the human heart are owing to unbelief in future grace. If love and virtue flow from a being satisfied with all that God is for us, that is faith, if it flows from faith, if it's faith that works itself out in love, the absence of love is owing to unbelief in future grace. And I would generalize to say all sinful states of the human heart are expressions of unbelief in future grace. So what I want to do this morning is take two or three or maybe we'll have time for four sample states of unbelief that every one of us in the ministry struggles with and analyze its origin and show its antidote. Its origin will be unbelief. Its antidote will be faith in future grace. So what I'm doing is simply driving home the points I've already made with example after example of the challenges of holiness and love and virtue and ministerial faithfulness in, in our lives. The first state of unbelief that I want to talk about is impatience. Let me define what I think impatience is or what patience is. In the ministry, and it's true for everybody, whether the ministry or not, we are often forced into an unplanned place of obedience. We didn't plan it. We didn't want to be there. This wasn't the place we meant to have the flat tire. This wasn't the place we meant to wind up. This afternoon or at this time, an unplanned place of obedience. I call it a place of obedience because every place is a place of obedience. Some of them are planned, some of them are unplanned, and when they are unplanned, the challenge of impatience is very great. The other side is that we are often compelled against our original planning to go at an unplanned pace of obedience. They rhyme just to help you remember them. Place and pace. An unplanned place of obedience and an unplanned pace of obedience. I meant to have this job done in two days. And it's been five days. And I'm getting very impatient. Or I meant to be at the meeting by 12. And I'm in a traffic jam and it's now 12.15, etc. Hundreds of instances in the Christian ministry where we are tempted to be impatient and thus to murmur and we are not to murmur according to Philippians 2.15 do all things without grumbling or questioning so that you'll shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation everybody grumbles a non-grumbling person sticks out like a star in the night sky and people ask what are you hoping in that you could be so late and not be grumpy what are you hoping in that you could be in the hospital with a broken leg instead of on your skiing trip and not be murmuring against God and circumstance? What makes you tick anyway? Now, let's do with this word of patience what we did with love. It's in the list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22 the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And so it's clear that a patient person, a non-murmuring, non-grumbling, contented person to go at an unplanned pace of obedience, in an unplanned place of obedience, a person like that clearly is being massively worked on and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if you ask then, well, what can I do to become that kind of person? We saw last night that you go to chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 5, where it says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, miracles like patience, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is hearing with faith. And so the key to patience is hearing a promise and believing it. And we want to talk about some of those. I, I brought along a little booklet here just to show you some of the things we do at our church. My associate who's been with me now for 16 years, Tom Steller, turned 40 a year and a half ago, November 19, 
94, I guess it was. Five, I'm not sure. And for his birthday, I put a booklet together. I love computers and laser printing because I can make my own books now. So I put a little book together for him, formatted it, printed it, stapled it. And it's called 40 Promises of God for Tom Steller on his 40th birthday. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I married Tom and his wife 17 years ago, and that was my wedding text. In the world you will have tribulation. (laughs) But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So how do you not murmur when you have tribulation in the world? You believe the promise. I've overcome the world. You believe it. And if you murmur, you're not believing it. You're falling into a brief lapse of unbelief when that happens. And then I just categorized them into, uh, well, actually, there are four categories of promises. And uh, he knows why I did this. This is the way we live the Christian life, by memorizing promises and using them against the temptations of unbelief. Colossians 1.11 says, in a prayer, Paul praying for the church, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So now Paul is praying that they'll be patient and endure hardship and not murmur and not grumble in the midst of their setbacks and their unplanned pace and their unplanned place in life. He's praying, oh God, grant that they would be strong for patience. But he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That means that out there in the future, it might be five minutes from now, it might be five years from now, 50 years from now, there's going to be a strength which accords with the glorious might of God available to you that will enable you to be patient. So how do you appropriate it? It's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit. You appropriate it by hearing that promise with faith. So it's the same key here, and I want to illustrate it for you from some biblical stories and some contemporary stories or historical Christian stories. The story that has helped me as much as any in the Bible with patience is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You all know the story, so we don't need to read it in detail, but let's rehearse it together because it's an amazing thing, and I have found it pastorally unbelievably helpful in people's lives. Because people seem to experience setbacks in batches. Have you ever noticed that? Setbacks are not spread over the congregation uniformly. They hit a family over and over and over again. We have one family that has lost two children. One in childbirth, one in crib death. A year later, a year old child. And he lost his job. And now... A year ago, she was found to have a massive lump and cancer. She had a great mastectomy. They thought they had it. And just two months ago, they found spots on her lungs. She's got four kids. And I I want to cry out to the Lord and say, would you spread that around a little bit? This family. Well, Joseph got his batch, right? He's hated to beginning to begin with, because of his prophecy that they're going to bow down to him. It might not have been smart on his part to tell them about that dream, but they don't like him. He's he's, uh, disliked, and that's a hard place to be. And then they decide they're going to kill him, and he gets thrown in the pit. And uh, a few hours later, he's being drawn up out of the pit, and he says, oh, good, there's hope. And instead of hope, they sold him to the Midianites who take him away to Egypt, and he's down in the pit again, as it were. And when he gets there, he's sold into the house of Potiphar, and God blesses him, and he starts to gain some credibility and have a nice job, and he feels, oh, good, I'm up out of the pit. And next, Potiphar's wife lies about him and his virtue, and he's down into the jail now. So he goes from being disliked 
into the pit, into slavery, up and then down into jail. In jail, he prospers again because he's faithful and he begins to have responsibility there. And it's not so bad as it might be. And along comes the butler and the uh, baker and he interprets their dreams for them and they thank him. And one of them thanks him. And uh, he goes back into the into the court of Pharaoh and he says, by the way, remember me. And he forgets him for two years. So he's. Yeah, there was some hope there. I'm going to be remembered and brought out of this. And I did a good deed and I'll be helped in two years. And then after two years, this is now a period of what, about 17 years? By my chronology is right. About 17 years of setbacks, unplanned places, unplanned paces. Would you not, if you were Joseph, be tempted to lift your fist into God's face and say, How much faithfulness do I have to show under how many circumstances for you to begin to treat me right? I mean, that's the way a lot of people talk when they have setbacks. And then at 17 years, he gets the chance to predict or to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh uh, makes him the vice president of Egypt. And he gives a wise scheme about how to prevent famine. I mean, prevent devastation from famine. The brothers eventually come down and it all falls into place. Aha, I see what you were up to. And in verse 7 of chapter 45 and in verse 50, I mean, verse 20 of chapter 50, it says, um, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to keep alive a people at this time. Now, that that story is in the Bible for the sake of your people's patience. That's why it's there. All things are written that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope that all of our setbacks are designed for our glory. And so believing that is the key to not murmuring. Use an analogy like this. Suppose... uh, well, instead of making up uh, making up an analogy, let me give you a real story. How many of you have heard of uh, Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield? Raise your hand. Okay, most most of you know Warfield, the inspiration and the authority of scriptures. There's a story about Warfield that very few people know about. I didn't know about it until I was uh, talking about his view of scripture one time, and Mark Knoll, the history professor at Wheaton, was in the audience, and he came up to me afterwards and told me this story, and then I dug it out and read it for myself in in a biography, uh, he was married to a young, beautiful girl named Annie Kincaid in 1876. And they took a honeymoon to Switzerland to do some skiing. And on their honeymoon, on the ski slope, she was struck by lightning and paralyzed for the rest of her life. Never got out of bed. All right, now picture yourself in this situation. You believe in the sovereignty of God and you just married a beautiful woman and anticipate a planned life of joy and she's paralyzed on your honeymoon. 39 years later, she dies. Warfield never went more than two hours from his home. And always refused opportunities of ecclesiastical advancement and kept his post at Princeton Seminary that he might go home at midday and care for her. And he did for 39 years. You talk about an unplanned place and an unplanned pace. So when I read that, I said, I want to hear the voice of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield on Romans 8.28. I want to hear what he says after 39 years of this. So I took down the little book. I think it's called The Way of Life. It's a group of of, uh, devotional by Warfield that's in print from the Banner of Truth Trust. And I looked up his little devotional on Romans 8.28, which was written quite late in his life. And this is the key sentence. He said, God will so govern all things that we shall reap only good. From what befalls us. 
God will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from what befalls us. Now, I don't know to what degree he succeeded in not murmuring for 39 years, but I have very little evidence and record that he was a man of of bitterness or a man of murmuring. Don't think he was. He poured his life into his work and he poured his life into his wife. And we have the benefit of his faithfulness in books today. But the way you endure patiently in that situation is by believing what he just said there. That promise of future grace, God will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from what befalls us. The battle for patience, though it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is a battle for faith in future grace. Namely, the grace of Romans 8, 28. Excuse me, that God will work all things together for our good. The illustration I was going to use that I made up was this. Um... Suppose you were planning to take a ski trip and you had been planning it for months and you were in a car accident and broke your leg the day before you were to leave with your family to go to Aspen, Colorado. And uh, you're tempted really to murmur. Oh, man, this is just not the way it should happen. I've been serving as a pastor faithfully for all these years and blah, 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 blah. And they, it's a compound fracture, and the doctors, in setting it, find this strange lump in your calf. I have a young woman in our church with a huge, massive scar hole in the back of her calf. She was my secretary for a while, and she had major surgery at age 16 to remove a cancerous growth. So they find this lump. And they take it and do a biopsy on it, and it's malignant. And they therefore do a big surgical removal, and the doctors say, you know, if we had not taken this, it would have spread, and you'd probably be dead in two years. Now, would would that not change your murmuring about the broken leg? If you knew that God was so ordering this accident that you would not die, just miss a ski trip, would you stop murmuring? So that if if the car hit, smashed, feel the pain, the leg's broken, and you knew at that moment it's to help me find out I've got cancer, have successful surgery, and live another 40 years when I can do what I need to do, would you not be revolutionized in your emotional response to that moment? You would be. And that's the way it is always if you believe Romans 8.28. If you believe in the sovereign goodness of God to so order all things that only good comes from what befalls us, then you will not murmur. You will be patient and you will go at the unplanned Pace in the unplanned place of obedience. Let me give you one of those amazing illustrations that I ever found, and I included it in this book on page one, one seventy one. Um, this is a story about a young woman. In the uh, she was a Huguenot, French Protestant. In the late 17th century, in southern France, a girl named Marie Durant was brought before the authorities and charged with Huguenot heresy. She was 14 years old, bright, attractive, marriageable. She was asked to abjure the Huguenot faith. She was not asked to commit an immoral act, to become a criminal, or even to change the day-to-day quality of her behavior. She was only asked to say, j'abjure. I abjure. No more, no less. She did not comply. Together with 30 other Huguenot women, she was put into a tower by the sea. For 38 years, she continued. And instead of the hated word, j'abjure, she together with her fellow 
martyrs scratched on the wall of the prison toward the tower the single word resiste, resist. The word is still seen and gaped at by tourists on the stone wall at Agmort. We do not understand the terrifying simplicity of a religious commitment which asks nothing of time and gets nothing from time. We can understand a religion which enhances time, but we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope. Key word, temporal hope, was nourished by another hope. Not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change to night and summer into autumn, to feel the slow systematic changes, systemic changes, within one's flesh, the dying, the drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of the joints, the slow stupefaction of the senses, to feel all of this and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and to endure. It is possible to be patient if you have a hope beyond the temporal. There are so many promises in the Bible to encourage us. Let me mention one or two more before we take up another sample sin of unbelief. Isaiah 64.4 is one of the most significant verses in my battle for faith and for the obedience of faith. Um, it basically says... Who has seen a God like you or who has perceived a God like you who works for those who wait for him? Who works for those who wait for him? So you're in some situation. Your plan is shattered. You have to go at an unplanned pace in an unplanned place and you're tempted to murmur. And instead, what you do is you take one of your memorized 40 promises one of which would be Isaiah 64, 4. And you say, no, he promises that for those who wait on him, whether a traffic jam or a hospital bed or beside a coffin, those who wait for him, he will work for them. God works for those who wait for him. Or that great, great new covenant promise from Jeremiah 32, 41. I will never turn away from doing them good. And I will keep them from turning away from me. The new covenant is an awesome promise that God has made never to turn from doing us good. There's a hymn that I love that captures the importance of trusting in God's providence when things don't go the way we think they should. It hangs on the mantel or above the mantel in my living room, just above the fireplace in cross stitch, stitched by one of the young women of our church about 10 years ago during a sermon series on Ruth. The book of Ruth, I entitled the series Sweet and Bitter Providence because uh, Naomi means pleasant. And when they came back, having lost her husband, having lost two sons, having been forsaken by one daughter-in-law and the one being left a Moabite foreigner to come home. When she came home, she said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And she was right. He had dealt bitterly with her. But the point of the book by the end is same as Joseph. Exactly the same point, exactly the same point as the book of Job, exactly the same point as the whole Bible, namely that our God reigns in order to do good for his people. And she, through this foreign Moabite woman, was brought an heir who became the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the father of Jesus. This hymn became the theme song of that sermon series, and it goes like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling 
face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. William Cooper struggled with depression and suicidal attempts and thoughts and insanity all of his life. And I praise God that God turned that man's broken life into life-giving power for me in that poem that he wrote. Just amazing. God has this world so masterfully, artistically under control that we cannot begin to dream of how the pain of our lives is going to function for the good of ourselves and for other people. Oh, that he would teach us not to murmur, but to be patient. Because when that happens, people will say, tell me the reason for the hope that is in you. You must be finding satisfaction somewhere else than where I find it because you don't murmur at your unplanned paces and unplanned places. I'm preaching above myself here, I want to assure you. (laughs) I am not there yet at all in this murmuring issue. Let's take one, we'll see what we've got time for, a little, little more time maybe for covetousness. Let's talk about covetousness as a state of unbelief in future grace. A state of unbelief in future grace. Here's my definition of covetousness. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. an inappropriate level of desire. Epithemia desire. Thou shalt not covet. Have you ever noticed how the last of the Ten Commandments relates to the first of the Ten Commandments? Have you ever asked whether or not they're the same commandment as I think they are? One negative and one positive. You shall have no other gods before me is the positive way of saying Thou shalt not covet. And the textual warrant for that is Colossians 3, verse uh, 5, where Paul says, because of covetousness, wrath is coming upon the world, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It is desiring something so powerfully that you lose your contentment in God, and thus this thing begins to rise as God in your life. Could be anything. And most of it are good things. They just become idols. Now what do you do? How do you fight that in your life? Why don't you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. I want to show you something that has made a tremendous difference in my life. Because in my early days as a Christian. In my early days as a thoughtful Christian I should say. I suppose. I really misused a couple of texts in Philippians 4. And I don't want you to make the same mistake I did. You probably have it worked out much better than I did in those days. But in, in Philippians 4, Paul says in verse, uh, let's start at verse 11. Not that I complain of want. So he's not murmuring about lack of things. Not coveting. Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That's the challenge of Christian hedonism, of living by faith and future grace. I have learned in whatever state to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When I taught Bible at Bethel College, I would use this for a devotional in every class somewhere through the semester. And I would say, um, without quoting the context, I would read, because this is a verse that many Christian kids grow up memorizing, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I would ask people now, what do you mean? What, What sorts of things can you do? Never did anybody say hunger. 
Never did anybody say poverty. Never did anybody say sickness. They always said triumph things, triumph things. That's not the text. The text is, I know how to be abased. I know how to face hunger. I know how to not abound. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. So the key to being content in the midst of abasement, hunger, poverty, brokenness, sickness, and by implication, all the painful things that you experience is to be content in him who strengthens you for that. The strength of the Lord is in suffering, not from suffering. Now, that wasn't the whole story. Look at verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours. All your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you relate that to verse 13? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My God will supply all my needs. And the answer is, uh, your need is probably not what you think it is. It's probably not escaping from abasement. It's probably not escaping from hunger and want. It is probably being strong enough to glorify God in those circumstances. So I I don't ever say to my church when we are running short of the budget. Because of Romans 4.19, God is obliged to meet our financial expectations. We're $400,000 short in November, say, of a $1.4 million budget. And we're on the calendar year. I do quote this verse, but I've taught the people and I mean what we need, according to God's reckoning of what will be good for us, he will supply. And therefore, we need not fear. And if we go bankrupt, we go bankrupt. If missionaries have to come home, they come home. If I have to take a cut in salary, which I did two years ago, we cut the whole salary the whole staff salaries, 5%, and kept them flat for another year after that because of how tight things were. So be it. God does what's good for us, not what our expectations are. So texts like these are tremendous resources of contentment against covetousness, which would say, I've got to have X amount of dollars, or I've got to have X amount of food, or I've got to have X amount of clothing, or housing, or whatever. And you don't have to have it. Um, There are many warnings in the New Testament against covetousness. Have you ever asked the question, how do you believe a warning? Is believing a warning the same as faith in future grace? I've thought a lot about that and I think it is a species of faith in future grace. That is, if God warns you not to do something because a terrible consequence will come, that's a gracious thing for him to do. To believe it is to believe that he's gracious in doing it. So, for example, um, take 1 Timothy 6. This is the most uh, full Illustration of the warnings against covetousness. In uh, 1 Timothy 6, it says, 6 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin. So notice, if you desire to be rich, that's covetousness. If you desire to be rich, What are the negative things that are going to come? It's going to be a trap. It's going to produce many other senseless and hurtful desires. 
They are going to plunge you into ruin and destruction. It's suicide, in other words. Now, how do you believe that? You believe what God is telling you is a gracious thing to know, and therefore you pull back from the desire to be rich because you're trusting God's counsel that it's going to go bad for you if you do. It's going to kill you. It's going to pierce you through with many pangs. And instead, you put your trust that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Maybe one last text on covetousness, and, and maybe we'll stop there and take questions. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verses, oh, let's start at uh, 5. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So there it is. Don't be covetous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Instead, be content. That's the alternative to covetousness. Be content with what you have. For he has said, and then come promises. So he asks, what is the power to be free from the love of money and to be content and not to be covetous? It's to believe these promises. For he has said, I will never fail you nor forsake you. Hence, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So just take those two illustrations, the one about patience and the one about contentment and freedom from covetousness or impatience and covetousness and use them as illustrations for how faith in future grace, faith in the all providing promises of God, cut the nerve of impatience and cut the nerve of covetousness and thus free you not to murmur and not to be greedy so that you lead a life of peace, not pre preoccupied with yourself, but preoccupied with others. And people see you and say, what what is the hope in you? I don't get you. And you then begin to tell them the glories of the future grace promised by the Lord and purchased by the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together and then we'll, we'll talk some. With all my heart, I pray that my life would be freer than it is from murmuring and from covetousness. I love the picture of freedom from these things that the Bible portrays and calls us to in the radical distinction of being aliens and exiles in a world where our souls are being warred against so that we might be citizens of heaven, where we expect a Savior who will change our lowly bodies into a body like his glory. So make us free here, Lord, so that we can give our lives away to our parishes and to the unbelievers in our city at whatever cost. Teach us, I pray, what it is to live by faith in future grace and thus cut the nerve of impatience, covetousness, and all kinds of other states of unbelief that bring dishonor to you and grant that we would walk in love that glorifies you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You ask a question. I'm going to ask if I can do something. Namely, take your picture. You ever, have everybody do this before? I, I have to have some evidence that I was here. And I'm going to I'm going to take a couple of pictures and say, there they are, folks. These are the Australians. They look just like human beings. <laughs> now, this is a broken... There it goes. All right. So you, you can smile or do whatever Australians do in pictures. And I will uh, take this group and then that group. And uh, let's see here. I'm going to take, have to take more than two. There's one. Did it flash? Okay, because my, my thing hasn't been flashing. All right. Did they have a flash? Oh, no. Oh, wait longer. <laughs> Thanks to you. Uh, I know we're not done. We'll meet again tomorrow, but some of you may not be here. That uh, This has been really delightful, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow at 2 o'clock to, to wrap things up. And I want to encourage you and liberate you right now to ask questions because I think in all the years that I've been speaking... I've never had such uh, consistently perceptive questions. 
and biblically rooted questions and theologically helpful questions. So go at it again for a little while. I'm not sure what we have. Another 15 minutes maybe. So you, can I just call on you? All right. I, I had prepared lust and bitterness or unforgiveness uh, and then anxiety are the ones I didn't have time to, to cover. The, these states of unbelief, there are eight chapters in Future Grace that, that are, deal with these particular ones. All right, yeah. All right. I, I have no problem with it at all. Um, do you stumble over saying believe promises? I don't mean anything different than that. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. That's I I I confess that 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 could be improved. There may be a better way to say it so that it's clear that I'm looking to a person. I'm looking to God and I'm looking to Christ to treat me graciously. I'm looking to the Holy Spirit to empower me. Grace to me is flowing from God inescapably. It does not exist amorphously or independently out there like a blob or like some reservoir of power. It's just, it's, it's God acting graciously. So I just, you're right, that's a good qualification. The question was, uh, how would I account for Job's murmuring if he was not a man of unbelief? And I would say that Job repented in chapter 42 precisely for yielding to unbelief. Now, see, when I use the word unbelief, I don't mean it absolutely. I, I believe Christians rise and fall in the level of their faith in future grace or in God's promise to take care of them. And so when I, if I were to go back to my study in a little while and start going, can't believe that camera, lousy, no good thing, why did I get stuck with this? That would be a lapse of faith in future grace. It doesn't mean I've become an, a pagan or an unbeliever. It just means that in my relationship with my father, a cloud has come between us and I'm not attending to the power and grace that he has offered to say, look, I will work this out. And it was good for you that you ran out of film. And then I will repent of murmuring. So I think the point of the book of Job is, is chapter 42. I am sorry for what I said. I repent in dust and ashes. I saw you uh, uh, what, by the hearing. The, I, I heard you by the hearing of the ear. Now I, I seize you and I repent in dust and ashes. I think Elihu is absolutely right. Elihu nails everybody in the book of Job. I think Elihu speaks for God. That's my interpretation. Back here and then over there. I'm glad you asked that because a text that I've neglected I may have referred to it the first night, I don't remember, but to, to illustrate grace as a power. But you all know this precious, precious text. Second Corinthians has got to be one of the favorite books for beat-up pastors. I mean, it is one glorious book of suffering. Paul suffered incredibly and was not naive in saying, we Suffer, always rejoicing. In chapter uh, 6 or 11, I can't remember which it is. But, but with regard to his weaknesses, the thorn in the flesh passage in chapter 12, starting verse 8, Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For... My power, meaning my grace, my gracious power, my powerful grace, is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, Paul concludes at the end of the Lord's words, and here's Paul's response. I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, for his glory, I am content. Now, notice... I 
You know, when you have a theological system, you start seeing everything through the glasses of your system, and it's very dangerous. But it's also wonderfully encouraging (laughs) when you see things like this. For me, it says, for the sake of Christ, that's the glory that Christ is after, I am content. He is most glorified in me when I am most contented in him. You see it. You start seeing it. Once you get it, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak and it looks like I ought to be murmuring, then am I strong? Because if I'm content in him, people look and say, what is that? So the, the, the beauty of the ministry is that you don't have to be triumphalistic. Americans are very prone to put premiums on triumphs that are not calling any glory to God whatsoever. You can build a church without God. You know that. You can build a big, successful church without the Holy Spirit. And uh, generally, you'll get the glory if you do. But if you want God to get the glory, count on a lot of suffering. Because when you're strong in weakness, something new. It's the, it's the theology, Martin Luther's theology of the cross. Not triumphant theology, but rather the theology of the cross. So I'm not sure what you were fishing for, but it just gives me an occasion to say that my Christian hedonism is a call to suffer. By the way, um, you don't know this at Ridley Bookstore, probably, uh, but there's a new edition of Desiring God that published about a month ago. They don't have it. Those are IV Press in Britain, copies back there. And in America now, there's a brand new edition of Desiring God. It's the 10th anniversary edition. And if you say, well, what's new about it? The answer is there's a new chapter. And you know what it's called? It's called Suffering, the Sacrifice of Christian Hedonism. Because over the years of this book's existence, the question comes back again and again. Well, now, are you really part of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Are you really calling for you know everybody to be... A, uh, con- uh, comfortable and easy and and uh, that's exactly the opposite of my whole theology. I'm trying to get people so happy in God they can die happily. Give their lives away. Suffer for needy people. And so I decided I'm going to add a chapter on this thing and settle this once for all. Maybe. <laughs> when you choose a word like Christian hedonism you know you got yourself in trouble anyway. So, talking. Yeah, way back there. That's a good question. I'll try. That's really similar to your question. And uh, I, um, I certainly would prefer a righteous lament. That is a lament coming from a righteous heart than a stoical buck up and uh, that isn't leaning on God but is doing what Marcus Aurelius did when he was struck on the cheek and and somebody said, now what? And he said, what? I didn't feel anything. In other words, he was just filled with spite towards his enemy and he would put his enemy in his place by not feeling anything the enemy did toward him. That's the essence of Stoicism and so far from Christian contentment. So contentment in Christ in the midst of suffering does not minimize the pain and the tears and the agony and the crying. Jesus wept and he swept blood. Now, let me, I mean, I don't want to overstate, I don't want to create the impression that, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me is uh, a real, genuine, bona fide cry of agony. I said to a group the other night, I forget, where, in what context, that that's a hair's breadth from blasphemy. Not blasphemy. To accuse a holy and good God of forsaking a perfect and wonderful person would be blasphemy. But we all know, and I don't know what you've done with it, that he's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 ends with the triumph of the servant. And so... Uh, without taking the heart and the agony out of what he was doing, I don't think 
he was puzzled. I don't think the Son of God was puzzled. He knew what was going to happen. He planned this thing. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When he was on the cross, he didn't say, oh dear, where did this come from? Or what am I doing here? Or what am I accomplishing? He was not perplexed about how God would redeem his people. Therefore, he knew his Father would pour out his wrath upon him, and he knew that his Father would turn away, as it were, from sin. So, my interpretation of those words is that they are an interpretation of what was happening, but really powerfully from his heart. But the, I guess the bottom line, what both of you are asking is, is there a faith-filled way of complaining to God? Let's go ahead, address that down here. Just help me. Yeah. Lament is different from accusation, isn't it? Is that what the rest of you are going to say? Oh, separate question. Anybody going to comment on that? No. Okay. Well, maybe we'll leave that. And I, I just, I'm, I don't have the last word on that, and I'm happy to, to be counseled on it. Are those hands up, ready to comment on that? Go ahead. Okay. Why don't we, why don't we go to a new direction now? I think we could talk about that one probably forever, but let's, let's go another way. Nope, not at all. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were present far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life. Well, let's take the first one first, Psalm 116. I addressed that in Future Grace because when I taught this in my own church, which I like to do before I go into print, that was exactly the question they raised. Are the paying of vows um, an example of the debtor's ethic or of being motivated by gratitude? One of the things I said in response to that question was that when he said, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? His, his answer was, now you translated it, uh, take, take the cup. From the RSV says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. What, what do you think that means? Here's my interpretation of it. I, what shall I render to the Lord from all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and uh, let him fill it again. Or toast him. Um, so whatever my response is to his blessing me infinitely is a drawing upon him of more blessing. That's what I want to lay hold of. Now, let me... What am I going to do with that last verse there? This is not scripture, so I'm not as troubled by... Is, that, is it Watts? Um, um, demands. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all. I would ask Isaac Watts, in what way does it demand? That is, what are the dynamics of the mindset that you are thinking of here? Do you mean that I'm to begin a payback schedule? And my guess is he'd say, no, 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 that, that, you're missing it. That's, that's a caricature of what I have in mind. I say, good, because it's worthy of caricaturing, if that's what you have in mind. And I, and I think he would say, the same as Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not freely with him give us all things and how then can you not be so freed from every obstacle, from every hindrance as to throw your life into his service? Um, I've been thinking, I, I woke up several times last night trying to help us come to terms with this gratitude thing because it's so prevalent and here's a thought that I had. Um, I wonder if our language is so fuzzy here 
that when we use the word motive, we mean something so broad that even I'm going to allow gratitude to stand as a motive. Because what we mean by motive is something that we experience which helps us obey. But we don't account for the how it helps us. We just leave it at that. And if we leave it at that, I don't think a person who is without gratitude will ever obey. Because if they are not thrilled with the goodwill of God in the grace of the past, they'll never bank on it for the future. So if they're not grateful for what they see of God revealing himself and doing for them in the past and saying, what a God, what a grace. And then as they turn to the challenges of the future, they won't say, and therefore, what a grace is available here for me to live the life today. So gratitude in that sense is a prerequisite of this obedience. But if you take the word, not motive, but empowerment, enablement, and ask, what enables the next step of obedience? There's where I'm going to negate and say, not gratitude. Gratitude is not the power. It is not the enablement today. New, fresh resources of power and grace coming from God are the enablement. And the past evidences and benefits are the guarantee that that will come. Now, I don't know if that helps or not, but that, that's the best I can do.